Well, didn't Adrian do a good job teaching on James 5 last week? Yeah, he did. I was watching from afar, from Cocoa Beach, Florida, sitting there on the beach, listening and listening to you all sing while the waves were rolling in. It was quite nice. And uh, he did a good job. That His teaching has been uploaded to our podcast, so you can access his teaching on James 5. And then um, I will be uploading my teaching on Genesis chapter 1 this week, hopefully if I have the time, and then we'll be all called up. So sorry if you follow along with those things, and I, I was super behind on that. Um, a couple things, though. Um, somebody asked me, uh, where do you get a good Hebrew Bible or Hebrew Tanakh or like the Hebrew text? Because we're going through the book of Genesis, and how many of you know Genesis written in Hebrew, right? Yeah. This is um, Lucy Peters actually sent this to me, and she's probably watching online. So thank you, Lucy, for sending this to me. It's a beautiful copy of Bereshit. Bereshit. It's the Magerman edition put out by Corin, Pub- Corin Publishers out of Jerusalem. Nice. And uh, so it's a beautiful text. It doesn't have commentary or anything. It just has uh, the Hebrew text and the English translation Fair next enough. to it. But um, it's, it's all the book of Genesis. And it has the vowel, po- vowel pointings on it. So if you're learning how to read Hebrew, which I encourage you to do, you can follow along with the vowel pointings on there. The other thing that I use... Um, in addition to a lot of online study tools, is this. This is one of my favorite Bibles that I have, and this is a Hebrew-English Bible, but it is the entire Bible. It's all 66 books of the Bible, including the Greek Chadashah, the New Testament, in there as well. Look at that. Wow, I turned right to it. What are the odds of that? So it has the book of Matthew, and it picks up, and it's translating the book of Matthew into Hebrew, and it has the English translation as well. But I love this. I picked this up in Jerusalem, actually, at the um, Israeli Bible Institute, uh, it has maps in the back and lots of Hebrew maps you can find and stuff. So this is a great tool. But also I use a lot of um, online study tools. I use um, uh, eSword and I use um, Bible Hub quite a bit as well. So those are free tools that you can access online. Because, you know, they always say good teaching, good teaching is not filling a pail. It is lighting a fire. And I hope that through teaching on the book of Genesis, I'm lighting a fire in you so that you'll want to go home and, and research some things. And I'm not sitting here filling a pail, filling, filling a bunch of pails, but lighting a bunch of fires. Um, but I want to say welcome home to all the Israeli travelers that we had. We had Xavier and Rebecca. They were gone. They were there six weeks, right? You were, four weeks you were in Israel. And then we've got Ted and Karen and Jackie. They were there two weeks, right, with Rico Cortez. It seemed like four weeks, yeah. Fit a lot in, huh? You guys rested up? No? Trying to recover still? Rico fatigue. Rico fatigue. And my in-laws joined them as well, so that's awesome. I'm glad you guys. And I think, I think you guys should get together, the five of you should get together and pick a good afternoon and put some pictures together. Maybe you guys can go through and maybe one afternoon we can bring our luncheon here and eat and you guys share some stories and some insights. So maybe get together and pick a date and just tell us, and, and maybe you could do that. That would be awesome. And just share with us what you guys learned and some photos and stuff, and just share some testimonies that you have. But Genesis has been awesome so far, and I, I teach really heavily on vocabulary. I weave a lot of Hebrew vocabulary into when I teach, and I'm learning a lot because it's kind of like when we opened with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it was like, remember when, if you're a parent in the room and you held your newborn child for the first time and they opened their eyes and looked at you for the first time and they looked at the world around them and you can kind of tell they're, in, they're just absorbing so much, right? 
so much information to take in. It's like overload almost. And they're having all this stimuli around them. And they're learning about the world around them. They went from being in the womb to suddenly being in this environment, this atmosphere. And we're kind of doing the same thing as we get into Genesis 1. We're learning so much so fast about our world, about the one who created the world, about our interaction with other human beings. And uh, we're learning, we're taking it in. It's just like we're newborn babes. We're opening our eyes for the first time. And uh, we should approach it like that. Uh, that's what Paul says, approach it, you know, like it's, it's the pure milk of the word. But uh, let's, do, let's do a review if you're down for it. Number one, let me turn around so I can face it here. In biblical terms, why do we start the day at sundown? Yeah. Because it says at the very beginning in the creation account, mm-hmm. the evening and the morning. Were the yeah, first yeah, exactly. All, all six times it said there was evening, there was morning, day one through whatever. Okay, good. So that's why up until this day, we start a biblical day. Um, so Shabbat started last night at sundown. And that's why we do it. We maintain that. What hovered over the water to excite it to action? Bob? The, ru- the Ruach. Yeah, the Ruach. Elohim. Yeah, to excite it. And remember, it uses that Hebrew verb, merachafetz, to, to hover over. One of my favorite words in Hebrew. On what day did God create man, and what changed in his descriptive language once he did create him? Anybody? The sixth day, and then what changed? Very good. Mm-hmm. Good, yeah. He said everything, everything leading up to that point, he described it. He looked back on it and said it's tov. And then when he created man, he said it's tov me'od. It's very good, right? Which kind of sets man apart from the rest of the created world. And why are there seven days in a week when you think about it? Yeah. Uh, going back to the other question, not only mm-hmm. did he say very good, but that's, uh, unless I missed it, that's the first time where he goes from and God said to he says, let us. Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He said, let us make man. And he said, Betzalmenu, in our image, right? And when you think about it, though, this question, very good. Thank you, Michael, for the observation. Why are there seven days in a week? When you think about it, um, why is most, if not all, of the world that's connected to, you know, some sort of commerce or technology or to the Internet or whatever, it has calibrated itself to a seven-day week cycle? Do you know Napoleon tried to implement a 10-day week cycle, and it didn't work out very well for him? But why are we all in a seven-day week cycle? It seems illogical, right? There's no natural phenomenon that tells us that there is a new cycle called a week. There is lunar cycles following the moon, but are there any weekly cycles in nature? No, there isn't. The only reason the entire world just about keeps a seven-day week is because there is a group of people, a family, a tribe, that kept this oral history and what became a written history alive through time. Amen. And that is the Bible, right? The Torah, and more specifically, Breshit, chapter, chapters 1 and 2. And we have a seven-day, the world has a seven-day week cycle. I thought that was interesting. What did God do on the seventh day of the week? He rested. He rested, yeah. He uses the word Shabbat, which means to cease. To cease. And then what is it supposed to foreshadow? We talked about that last week. We talked about his kingdom, his coming, the ultimate rest, right? The ultimate rest. Good. Sounds like you guys were maybe paying attention. Let's go to part two now. What was the first command given to humanity? Do you remember? I heard it. What? Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. He tells them to be Peru 
and to Rabbah, like become great, and Malah, the earth, to fill the earth. What was the second commandment? Second commandment in all of the Torah. Remember he said to put the kabosh on the earth. (laughs) He says subdue it. Subdue the earth. He uses the Hebrew verb kabosh. It's where we get, hey, put the kabosh on that. You know, it means to subdue something. Kabosh. Yeah, so that's the second commandment in all the Torah. To put, to, to kind of subdue something, yeah. Oh, I just gave the answer there. Kabosh. What is the opposite of the earth being subdued? Chaos. Yeah, it's the earth subduing us. Right? Go, go with me to Romans 8.22 real quick. Romans 8.22. Romans 8.22. We know that until now, the whole creation, that's the story that we're reading right now, it has been growing as with the pains of childbirth. It has been sustenazo. In other words, in Greek, it means it's groaning in unison with anger. Interesting, right? There's something that happened at the fall of humanity that caused the earth to enter this cycle of groaning, like childbirth. And it's groaning, more specifically, in unison with itself and in anger. And it says Paul is waiting for the redemption of that. Waiting for that to be reversed. Jim, on our family thread, recently shared a very interesting article that was talking about plants. Mm-hmm. And how scientists have now been able to identify that they actually make noise, they actually mm-hmm. groan, mm-hmm. Um, particularly when there's any kind of a trauma or injury. Yeah. And then he went on, Jim went on as a scientist to say, and even bacteria do that. And I yeah, found that fascinating. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Yeah, thank you for sharing. So, what do we know of God's name or title up to this point from Genesis 1? What do we, what do we know? What do we call him up to this point? No, not yet. Elohim. That's the only thing we know of him at this point is that his, his, what we refer to him up to in Genesis 1 is Elohim. And that, like I told you last week, that's not his personal name. God has a personal name. It's not, that's not Elohim. It's more of a title. It's a generic title. There are other, there are other beings and other entities that are called Elohim. Um, other gods. But obviously we know there's one Elohim. But Elohim means Lifted up one, exalted one, okay? That's going to change here in, in just a minute. So good. So, Ele toldots hashamayim vehaares. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So open with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis 2, 4. Here is the toldots of the shamayim and the ares. When they were created. Now pause here. This word told dotes, it means the history, but really it's used 10 more times after this in the Tanakh. And it means generations or descendants. Go with me to, and you see it spelled up here. Tav, Vav, Lamed, Dalit, Vav, Tav. Told dotes. But go with me to um, chapter 5, verse 1 real quick. Chapter 5, verse 1. Here is the ve'ele toldot adam. Now, it's misspelled here. Toldot is missing the vav. It falls off. 
What happens between Genesis 2 and Genesis 5? The fall of humanity. And you remember I talked about this when we went through the book of Ruth, right? It's misspelled about 39 times, if I'm not mistaken. From memory, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's 39 times. And it's not spelled correctly. Does anyone know when it is spelled correctly again? Ruth 4.18. Ruth 4.18. I'll read it real quick. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Ruth 4.18. Remember, the, the book of Ruth is all about the gospel. The coming of the Goel, the Redeemer. Ruth 4.18. Let me go there real quick. and I'll read it just so you guys have a reminder. Ruth 4.18. It says, here is the genealogy of Peretz. This is right after Ruth and Boaz marry and they begin to have children. And it goes through and it ends up with the last person in the genealogy of Peretz is David. And then remember, when I went through the book of Ruth, I jumped over to Matthew, and then we picked up in David, and then followed it down to Yeshua. So there's something that happens when Ruth marries Boaz, the Moabitess marries the Bethlehemites. It opens up the opportunity for redemption, the Goel to come. And the Toldot, the essence of, of humanity to be restored back to its original state. That opportunity is now created. So anyways, I take you through that little rabbit trail to tell you that everything, when you, especially when you read it in its original language, there are no accidents. Um, so let's back up. Verse 4. When they were created, right? Here's the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day when, now let's pause here. If you're reading this in Hebrew, you would come across four consonants. Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. There is the personal name of God. Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. Now, your Bibles likely have one of, one of the few options here, either L-O-R-D in all capital, or if you have maybe the complete Jewish Bible, it's Adonai, or maybe it's Hashem. But um, this is the four-letter name of God. Now, how do we pronounce this name? I don't know. I, I have this... Interesting fascination with, an, with, with how people pronounce the name of God. I, think um, does. Yeah. I have an interesting fascination. Uh, I've counted so far 14 different pronunciations of the name of God. Wow. And all of them are by people who are like, I would take this to my grave. I'm like, well, <laughs> one of you is wrong and 14 of you or 13 of you or one of you is right and 13 of you are wrong because they all can't be correct. <laughs> it's, I have this interesting fascination with that and I'd love to write a book on it. But there is, unfortunately, what is called a uh, what is it, um, sacred name movement that teaches that unless you use this name and here you have to use my pronunciation of the name, you are displeasing God in some way. And that is a heretical, uh, 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 I would say, very divisive and dangerous doctrine. It is never, never does that doctrine exit the lips of our master and savior Yeshua. Right. Now, how does 100% of the time he refer to God the Father? Well, not 100% of the time, but he uses Abba or he uses Kyrios in the Greek. Now, he's, he's speaking Aramaic and Greek there. But never does he make it a stickler that, hey, you have to pronounce it this way and here's how you pronounce it. If he did, he would make that very clear and explicit to us. Now, do you... Some of you may want to pronounce the name. Fine, go for it. But you can't look at me and with 100% and say, this is how you pronounce it, 
and you have to pronounce it this way, or somehow you're, you're displeasing God. Because my Savior didn't make that a tenant of his faith. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Abba, Father, who art in heaven. Right? So I see a hand up. Do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. And the sacred name movement has its tentacles in other factions. Um, it, it worked its way into um, Jehovah's Witness has an element of sacred name movement um, or sacred name-ism. Um, black Hebrew Israelites have an have a element of sacred. The Hebrew Roots movement has an elements, uh, certain elements of, of um, making sure you say this name or making sure you say it this way. But guys... Um, if you call him father the rest of your life, that works. Yes. So that's kind of the stance we've taken here at Dothan Messianic Fellowship is if you use the name, if you use your understanding or what you think the name should be pronounced, fine. But us as humans, sometimes we just have a hard time stopping there. We want to push that on other people. You have to say it and you have to say it like I say it. But yeah. And I've run across the opposite extreme also that says yes. since we don't know how to pronounce it, we shouldn't be saying it at all. Yeah, yeah. That inadvertently we could be mispronouncing it or putting some kind of, you know. Right, right. Uh, sinning, sinning if we do. Absolutely, yeah. I yeah. Say Adonai. So, yeah, Brent. Is there a reason why in this particular section that he states his name? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know why other than. God is, um, I, I believe in what we would, what theologians would call progressive revelation, yeah. that through the story of scripture, he is revealing, progressively revealing more and more of his nature and his character and his, like, his, his will to us. And the ultimate, the pinnacle of that progressive revelation would be the embodiment of that through Yeshua on earth. Um, so this could be a little bit, I don't know, but yeah. here it is. It's used for the very first time. Now this is the first time of 6,828 times that we're going to see yud hey vav hey in the text. 6,828 times. That's a lot. That's important. It's important that we know that it's there. It's important that you know that God does have a personal name. And that sets him apart from all other gods, even within the Abrahamic faiths like Islam, who call him Allah, right? We know that God has a personal name. And the consonants are yud hey vav hey. It was pronounced every year during Yom Kippur, publicly to everyone so they would have heard it pronounced but over time the pronunciation of that simply fell off and it got lost but yeah same question Kind of out of our pay grade, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting theory. Yeah, thank you for sharing it. So let's keep going. On the on the day when now I'm going to use Adonai here. Um, this is a circumlocution because, like I said, I I don't know how to pronounce a name, and I'm just going to use Adonai, which means my my maker, my master, uh, my lord. Um, now he's using Yudhe Vavhe Elohim made Eretz and Shemaim. 
There was as yet no... Now, if yours says wild bush, then cross that out. It should be plant of the field. Because so one of the things people, many people that try to undermine scripture, they'll say, wait a second, there's no plants or herbs or anything like that. How is God about to make mankind? Well, here it's very specific. It says that there is no plant of the field. And many commentators say that this is speaking of cultivated vegetation. There is no cultivated vegetation. It's, it's shiach hasadeh on the earth. And there was no esev hasadeh or herbs of the field, cultivated herbs. They had yet sprung up because Adonai God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no one to cultivate the ground. Rather, a mist went up from the earth which watered the entire surface of the ground. And this is not some magical mist that like shoots out of springs. This is just talking about humidity and dew, okay? This is, this is like describing that process. Now, if you guys um, know in Alabama, we have a lot of humidity in the mornings especially. And sometimes that, that dew settles on the grass and it forms liquid and that liquid rolls down the blades of the grass and it waters the grass. That's definitely possible. Um, it doesn't have to rain to water the grass. You just have high humidity. So it seems like that was going on at the case at the, at the time. And it says, Adonai God formed a Adam from the Afar of the Adama. You catch what's going on there? He's making a play on words. Now the Afar, that's the dust. And we sing that in the prayers, right? He keeps faith with those that sleep in the Afar, in the dust. So he's making us from the dust of the Adama. So there's a big play on words here because he's taking Adama the earth, and then he's forming Adam. And the Hebrew word for blood, does anyone know? Dam. Dam. Does anyone know the Hebrew word for red? Adam. Adam. So it's like he's taking, now have you guys ever seen this good Alabama clay? Right? It's kind of that reddish orange. Picture that. Like he's taking this reddish earth, this iron ore kind of like looking ground. And he's going to do this thing. He's going, to, he's going to animate it. He's going to animate it. And here's how he does it. It says that he breathed into his nostrils the nishmat chayim. Or some translate as the breath of life. So that he became a nefesh chaya. A living soul. Okay, so even though he formed the matter and made a body, was it alive? No. Was it yet a living soul? No, no it required breath. this breath, this nishmat. And that is what produced the nefesh haya. Now, did he do this with any other animals? No. No, he didn't. Already, we're seeing how unique and special mankind is in this process. And it says, Adonai God planted a gan and garden toward the east. And in Hebrew, that's Mikedem, like the band name, Mikedem, in Eden. And there he put the person who he had formed. Out of the Adama, Adonai God caused to grow every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life. Remember, we sing that in the prayers when we put the Torah scroll away. We sing, Etz Chaim, he, right? He caused the Etz Chaim to grow in the middle of the garden. And the tree of the Da'at 
Tov Veira, the tree of the Da'at, of good and evil, Ra. Verse 10. A river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided into four streams. The name of the first was Pishon. It winds through the land of Havilah, where there is Zahav. What is Zahav? Gold. Gold. And the Zahav of that land is Tov. Now, at this point, from this point forward, Mankind will take this Zahav and use it as the basis of what we now call money or uh, currency. currency. Thank you. Currency. And uh, it's been that way for thousands and thousands of years. That gold has been the basis of currency. And just a little history for you. When a people group or a society detaches itself from that connection and its currency to gold, it's got about 200 years left as a society. (laughs) So do the math on that. Carry the two, boy. (laughs) So the the gold of that land is good. And Adrian was telling about there's a group of countries that are trying to reattach themselves to the gold standard. So it's interesting. And it says that there was bedolach. And, and your translations are going to have a couple of different things, either precious stones or it's going to have bedillium. How many have bedillium? Oh, a lot of you do. How many of you have precious stones or something like that? Onyx. Okay. So there's a discrepancy there. Um, the Septuagint has like a precious stone and Rashi, the, the commentator, he says that it's, it's precious stones or crystals. Now, the Masoretic text has bedelium, which is um, a, a gum that comes from trees. It's an aromatic like gum that's used in perfumes. And, um, is it a resin? It's a resin, yeah. It's also what is... Remember when manna came down, it rained down on the camp of the Israelites? It said the manna had the same color of bedelium. Huh. Yeah. It is one of the ingredients to make myrrh. Yeah. So, yeah. And then there's onyx stones or shoham are also found there. Now, here it's interesting because Breshit, the book of Genesis, is telling us that God puts these things, these minerals and these resources in the Adama for us to take enjoyment from, to benefit from. Now, did he distribute these evenly across so does the state of Alabama have the same amount of gold and silver and iron as the state of Florida? No. 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 And does um, Nigeria have the same amount of oil as Saudi Arabia? No. No, not that we know of. You see, he has scattered these natural resources all around the earth for us to benefit from. But he put them in places, it seems like, that were you got to cross some borders to get to them, don't you? And that takes what we call diplomacy. Collaboration. <laughs> you have something that I need, and maybe I have something that you want or need. So we have two options. I can either invade you and take your stuff that I need and keep the stuff that you want or need to myself, or I can be diplomatic and I can 
maybe offer you some deals, right? But if you look through history, the majority of wars between humanity are caused over these, the cause are, are these things right here. That's it. Natural resources. It could be land. It could be minerals. It could be spices, oil. It could be opium. <laughs> you name it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're taking them by four sometimes, right? So he says in verse 13, this, the name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It is one that flows toward the east of Ashur. The fourth river is the river Euphrates. Now, there's someone here who's, who uh, swam and almost drowned in the Euphrates. And you can get that story from Adrian later. <laughs> Verse 15. Adonai God took the Adam and put him in Gan Eden. Two. Now, this is uh, the reason why he's putting him in. To Avad and to Shamar the garden. Now, Avad means to work or to serve in it. And then to shamar. What is shamar? To watch and keep guard over it, like the Shabbat, right? Like the Sabbath. Guard it. Because there might be someone who might invade it and try to undermine its specialness. Now, how many of you have gardened in the room or still do garden in the room? Many of you, yeah. Now, I always tell this quick story. I taught, I was, when I was teaching middle school, I had a seventh grade class come in. And they were going to be the end of me in my career. I mean, I was going to take up drinking as a pastime after the seventh grade class came in. They were wild. And I knew I had to change something. I had to get them outdoors. So we had a little plot of land outside my classroom window. There's maybe about a half an acre out there in this yard. I asked my administrator, my principal, I said, hey, um, can I take some of that space and turn it into a garden? And he said, sure. So I called some local nurseries. They brought in some, some mounds of dirt. They dumped them, donated some of them. I had parents bringing in a lot of potting soil and fertilizer. I found a bunch of scrap wood behind one of the buildings at the school. And I had the students build these raised bed boxes. We built about six of them to begin with. And we expanded it from there. And we took this patch of sand. It was in central Florida. So it was just sand and sand spurs. And just, it wasn't usable. And we cultivated the ground and by the end of the year we were growing more food in that garden with this rascally seventh grade class than what we could give away it was amazing i got photos of it i had heads of cabbage like just massive heads of cabbage, potatoes and okra and tomatoes and the next year my i mean my students loved it first of all and they were learning through gardening and some of them i remember i had a young haitian boy named shadrach he had never in his life gardened anything. His name was Shadrach. And I remember I, was, I said to Shadrach, I'm sitting out there watering this carrot. I said, Shadrach, you see that, um, you see that carrot? And he's like, no. <laughs> What's in the ground? You have to grab the top of that plant and pull it up. So we grabbed these carrot sprigs and pulled them up. And out came this massive carrot out of the ground. And his eyes were like huge. <laughs> he was staring there. And I said, eat it. And he's like, What? I'm like, that's a carrot. You can eat the carrot. 
And so I rinsed it off with the hose, and I mean, he took that first bite. It was like he was on this foreign planet. It was like I just ate something I took out of the ground for the very first time in my life. It was mind-blowing to him. And uh, we also, the next year, my principal said, this is great. He's like, I'll give you whatever you need to expand this. So we, then we got chickens and we got fruit trees. And uh, I, I remember sending these seventh graders out to go get the chicken eggs every morning. And they would, there'd be a competition who could do that. They would go out to the chicken coop and they would get these eggs. I remember this one boy, uh, um, uh, his name slips on mine now, Jerry. Um, I think it was Jerry. He comes in and he had a bowl of eggs. And he goes, Mr. Rutledge, how, what are you going to do with these eggs? And I was like, well, I'm going to give them to other teachers here and they're going to eat them, I guess. And he goes, well, how do you know there's not a baby chicken in one of them? Oh, no. And I said, well, Jerry, we don't have a rooster, buddy. And He's still in. He, the look on his face told me that I, his teacher, needed to have a... The talk. A, uh, a, exactly. I need to have a literal birds and bees conversation with poor Jerry. So a couple minutes later, every girl in the room was completely freaked out, and all the boys were just like, oh, like, whoa. But Jerry knew then where baby chickens come from. But there's something, if you've gardened in the room, you know that there is something about having dirt in your fingernails that gets you close to God, right? There's just something, it connects you to your creator. Um, And I think because that's how we were created. We were created to tend the garden. And some of the most um, intimate times I've had with my Lord is while sitting on a garden bed, drinking a cup of coffee and watching like bees come and pollinate flowers in my garden. Just like, man, this is beautiful. God's creation is, is beautiful. He's so good. So if you don't garden, pick it up and try it. You'll you'll learn about discipleship. You'll learn about God's original intent for humanity. You'll learn how to feed yourself wonderful food. So pick it up and try it. Yeah. You know, in a lot of nursing homes and assisted livings, they do these gardening products, projects, the raised beds so people like in wheelchairs can even do it. And what they found in in the area of brain science now is Mm. that people actually develop endorphins Mm. which is an antidote to depression. Interesting. So people that are feeling depressed get out there and garden and they start feeling better. Wow, that's really interesting. Very cool. Cure your depression. All right, we're going to keep going here. Um, so we put him in the garden. He told him to avad and to shamar the garden. So Adonai, God, gave the person this order. Yeah. When you say shamar, which is guard the, the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are they guarding? We'll find out in chapter three. <laughs> yeah, good question. Stay tuned. He says, now you may freely eat from, the, from every tree in the gan, in the garden, except the tree of the, here it is again, the at tov vera. You are not to eat from it. So what's the third command given in scripture? It's a dietary commandment. It deals with what we eat. How did sin enter the whole world? Spoiler alert. Through the breaking of a dietary commandment. Mm. You are not to eat from it. Because on the day that you eat from it, you will mot tamut. You will surely die. Mot tamut. It's, a, it's redundant. You will die and then you'll die. Now, did Chava, did Eve, did she die that day? No. So are we to take this completely literal? No. 
the process of dying began, right? Yes. She was exiled because exile is death. Exile is a form of dying. It's, I would say, greater than physical death. So in a way, she did. This is the third command. Now, this knowledge of good and evil, it seems weird to me because God wants us to know what good is and what evil is, right? He praises people in Scripture like Solomon who discern between good and evil. So why is he telling Adam and Eve, don't eat of the knowledge of good and evil? In short, this is not the best translation. This should be rendered as eat of the the ability to discern from good and evil on your own terms. It's like in Judges 17.6. Turn over there real quick. Judges 17.6. Judges 17.6. It says, At that time there was no king in Israel, and a man simply did what he thought was right. Mm. Does that ever work out well? No. See, the theme throughout Scripture is that we try to usurp the authority of God and define good and evil on our terms. He says, you can eat of the tree of life, of all the different trees, but you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these trees... They're symbolic for a choice that we have even today, today, December 3rd, 2022 in Dothan, Alabama, which is do I submit to God's law or do I pursue moral autonomy? That's a choice that every individual has to make right now today and every day of the rest of your life. Now go with me to chapter three, verse five, because here we're gonna see the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, It is not true that you will surely die, because God knows that on the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, being able to define good and evil on your own terms. You see, that was what did it for Eve. We, still to this day, are tempted with that very choice. It's this humanistic craving in all of us that is like you can define as long as your truth doesn't disrupt the truth of other people or hurt other people then go for it that's dangerous there's a theme all through scripture that is people get a promise or a directive from god here i promise you this it's a fruit but then that person seizes it by force. They don't wait for it. Can anybody think of some examples where that happens? Other than Adam and Eve? God gives a promise. I'm going to take it by force. Yeah. Sarah and what? And Hagar. Very good. Yeah. Abraham takes it by force. Anybody else? Yeah. Jacob, when he disguises himself as Esau. Yeah. Anyone else? Rebecca. Rebecca. What about? Yeah. Yep. You see the theme? I mean, we're just, we're still in the book of Genesis. Uh, what about David and Bathsheba, right? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's like this continual theme through scripture that humans see something. I think I deserve that. I will take it by force. 
And it gets us in big trouble, doesn't it? Instead of waiting, being patient. Let's keep going. Verse 18. This is a really cool section here. It says, Adonai God said, It is not tov that the Adam should be badad, which means isolated. I will make for him a companion that is suitable for Ezer, a suitable Ezer. And Ezer is a helper. Now, right away, some of you thought about um, like help making a sandwich. No. <laughs> or help getting me something out of the fridge while I sit on the couch. And No. That is not that kind of a helper. It's not the kind of server like you go to you know, Applebee's and you have a server. It's not that. And I'm going to prove it to you. Where else this word is used? Go to Deuteronomy. Let me, let me send these out real quick for the sake of time. Um, Deuteronomy 33.29. Let me get... Um, who is it by? Stacy, can you take Deut- Deuteronomy 33.29? Xavier. Psalm 20, verse 2. Psalm 20, verse 2. Let me get Howard. Psalm 33.20. 3320. Let me get Michael. Psalm 121, verse 2. Got it? And then Ariana, could I get you to do Psalm 124, 8? Now we're looking for this word ezer, helper, because it's going to help us overcome this notion that the woman is just there to serve and to be a helper. That she's just supposed to make the sandwiches, right? Let's see how this word is used. This is going to be beautiful for you to see. Who's got Deuteronomy 33, 29? Stacey. Yeah. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. You see that? It describes the God of Israel as the shield of your ezer, the shield of your help. Who's got Psalm 20, verse 2? Go ahead, Xavier. May he, that is uh, the God of Jacob in context, may he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. You see that how that word is used? May he send you Ezer from the sanctuary. Who's got Psalm 33, 20? Our soul waits for Adonai. He is our help and our shield. Our soul waits for Adonai. He is our Ezer and our shield. Who's got Psalm 121, too? Go ahead, Michael. Sure. I lift up my eyes to the hills, and where does my help come from? My ezer comes from the Lord. What about Psalm 124, 8? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So here it is. He says, I want to give him a companion that is suitable for being an ezer. Does that give you a little bit deeper understanding of this concept? What do you guys, how would you translate that word with all those verses in mind? I picture support. I picture protection. I picture defense. Rescue. All that. So yeah. Frank. 
<laughs> yeah. And she's not here to. So you know that you're being truthful. Yeah. All right. So let's keep going. Verse 19. So the Adama. So from the Adama. The Lord God formed every wild animal and every bird that flies in the air. And he brought them to the person to see what he would call them. Whatever the person would call each living creature, that would be its name. So the person gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the air, and every wild animal. But for Adam, there was not a companion suitable for being an Ezer. So then God called, God, I'm sorry, God caused a, now pause a second here. Did you guys catch it? You see the tetragrammaton fell off for just a moment. It just says, then Elohim caused a, now this is a very, very specific word. It's called a Tardema. Tardema. And uh, this is the deepest sleep that a human being can experience. This is used in Genesis 15, when Abraham is making a covenant with God. And it's the covenant of pieces, it's called sometimes. It says they put Abraham in a Tardema. It's like a, the deepest sleep. Now, we would call that in scientific terms anesthesia, uh, anesthesia maybe, or um, REM sleep. Oh, yeah. REM sleep. I don't know if that's the same as this Tardema, but you know, the deepest type of sleep that we know of in, the, in, this, in this physical realm is REM sleep. And that's when your body, your mind repairs itself. And they also say that your, your memories are logged into your long-term memory. They are codified in your brain into your long-term memory and REM sleep. And you should get a certain amount of REM sleep per night. And people that sleep, uh, there's, there's people that go years sleeping, but they don't get REM sleep, and it causes a lot of physical ailments. They might get 10 hours of sleep a night, but if they don't get REM sleep, um, it causes a lot of anxiety and stress and depress- depression. REM sleep is very important, but I don't, I don't know if this is the same thing. But this word... Um, it comes from Radam, and it's used only seven times. But it's the idea of like, when you enter REM sleep, that's when your dreams get really weird. They say during other types of sleep, your dreams, they're actually believable. They're from maybe events that you relive throughout the day or the week. But when you get in REM, REM sleep, they get like fantastical. Like they get like very bizarre. And it's like you're, and, and actually um, scientists say that there's actually a form of paralysis that comes over your body when you enter REM sleep. They did these studies when people would enter REM sleep, they would jolt them awake really fast and they, their response time was very slow um, because there's almost like a, um, rig, a, a mild form of rigor mortis that comes over your body. It's almost like you, you in a small way die during that time and your consciousness is kind of going to like sleep mode. Yeah. You restored my soul within me. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that the tardema, um, you see the root of that is dam blood. Some commentators would say that um, that it has a connection to the ceasing of your heart pumping blood through your body. Now we know you, you would die if that would happen, but during REM sleep, that is the that is the slowest your heart beats throughout the entire course of a day is during REM sleep. So it's like you're right there. It's like your heart is slow as it'll ever be throughout the day. But anyway, so this Dardema came upon Adam while he was sleeping. And he took one of his Selah. Selah. Not like um, Selah, like think about it, like the end of the book of Psalms. This is Selah, which your Bibles probably say ribs, right? And he closed up the place from which he took it with flesh. 
Now, this is, this is a rib. Now, how many of you believe that women have one less rib than men? It's not the other way around. We, men and women, have equal amount of ribs. It's 24. We all have two sets of 12. All right? So there's a common misnomer that men have one less rib than women, but that's not true. So what happened? <laughs> did he really take one of his ribs? Is this a figure of speech? Uh, did maybe Adam's sons then grow back another rib? Did they have more ribs? I don't know. The point is this. The point is this, that God took from Adam's side and made humanity. What did he made, made uh, a woman? What did he not make a woman out of? Dirt. Dirt. <laughs> he did not make a woman out of the dust, out of the afar, like he did the man. So husbands and wives, you can talk about that on your way home, what implications that might have. But in, I'm, quote, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing a lot of rabbinic commentaries here that say that because of that, women have a higher perception of the spiritual world and realm around them. They, they have a, a, a deeper, like, they're more perceptive, they have stronger antenna of, of the supernatural realm. Now, I don't know. I don't know, I, I don't know if that's the case. It, it probably is in my marriage. <laughs> If I'm being honest, but I don't know if that's 100%. But that's the beauty of this relationship. Let me take your question at the end real fast if I could. The, the beauty of this relationship is that a husband and a wife form a team. And that men are like the men, they're like beings of the ground. They want to go out and get things and kill things and bring it home, right? And, and they're like physical. They're largely not 100% unemotional, but they, they, they are men of the ground. They're beings of the ground. And the women, they're like, they're more emotional beings. They're more perceptive. They always say things like, how do you think what you just said came off to them? <laughs> right? Wow. Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So wait, before you send that text, right? That's what Stacey, before you send that text, read it to me. Because I want to make sure it doesn't, you know, and it's really good. It's like, okay, they're thinking emotionally. And I don't think that way. I don't think about some things where I say them. I just am very matter of fact sometimes. But it's a beautiful relationship that we have, right? Now, that relationship could be one of opposition, like, ah, oh, you're always getting in the way of things I want to do. Or, why well, you're always benefiting and enriching and, and, uh, and um, improving the things that I attempt to do because you are different than I am. Now, God is binary. He's 100% binary. The Bible is binary. <laughs> there are two genders. How do I know that? Chromosomes. <laughs> Men have an X and a Y, women two X's. 100%. Can't fail. That's how you tell a gender. Amen. Okay? It is not a matter of thought. It's not a matter of belief. You can believe it all day long. You can take it to the bank and bet your next paycheck. You, you, you are going to be one of two things, either two X's or an X and a Y. God is 100% binary God. And that's a beautiful thing. All right? So 22. The rib which Adonai God had taken from the person, he made a isha. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. And then he brought her to the Adam, the man person. And the man said, at last, this is etzem from my eights. And this is basar from my basar. Bones from my bones and flesh from my flesh. So she is to be called isha. 
because she was taken from the Ish. Now, this is another reason why some of the commentators say that um, you take a, one, of the, one of the letters of the, the Tetragrammaton, the, the He, and you add it to, to Ish, you get a Isha. You take an aspect of God's divine being in this essence and you get the woman. And this is why a man is to leave his father and his mother and to Davak, which is like to glue himself to his Isha, his wife. And they are to be Basar Echad, one flesh. And they were both Arum, naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now the Nachash was more Arom than any wild animal. You see the play on words there? They were both Arum, but the serpent was Arom, crafty. So we'll, we'll pick up there in chapter 3 next week. And Jeremy is going to be teaching on chapter 3 next week. But here are some questions. I want to do this kind of like a discussion here. Number one, do we still struggle with attempting to assert God's authority in exchange for self-autonomy? Yes. How many say yes, we do? Yes. Absolutely. You sitting in this room, and myself included, struggle with that every single day, don't we? We say things like, the Bible is a fluid text that was meant to be viewed through progressivism. We have evolved past the need for many of the Bible's prohibitions. Really? Or your truth is fine unless it, unless it hurts other people. Then that's okay. Just take that to its logical conclusion. How messed up is that? Right? You can exploit a lot of human beings. Especially if you believe in biological evolution, you can make some human beings less human. And therefore, they're just... Right? It's evil. God created Adam in his image and breathed what into him? Do you guys catch that? The breath of life. Breathed his nishmat, right? His nishmat chayim. His breath of life. Did he do that with any other animal? No. No. Which, if you believe the Bible to be the word of God, you have to believe that humans are betzalmenu, made in his image, and they have the nishmat chayim breathed into them. That automatically sets them apart from all other created organisms in the world. We are different. We are above them. We are to subdue them. Now, it doesn't mean, like, take advantage and kill all the baby seals or anything like that. Okay, don't do that. That just means that we use them to our advantage in a very you know, responsible way, right? But there's a movement, and, and especially, I mean, if, if you take, take this stuff out of education and you tell people, you tell children that there is no design or purpose to them whatsoever and that they are just a, the result of random processes and biological evolution, then we are no higher than animals. We are animals. And other humans are animals. And then your, the level of respect you show other people is dependent upon their ability and what they have to contribute to the collective. Collectivism is dangerous. 
Now, the Bible says every single human being is made in his image and deserves the utmost respect. Collectivism leads to us saying, well, if they're a drain on our society, hmm, I mean, it's a painless thing. Or if we know that they're going to be born into poverty, maybe we should do them a favor and just terminate their life now. Wow. Some of the greatest history changers in the world were born in some of the deepest, impoverished homes in the world. And we just give them a death sentence? How many, how many cures for cancer? How many Martin Luther King Juniors? How many like amazing human beings have we terminated and snuffed out because we just said, well, it'll, it'll, it'll prevent my future from working out the way I want it to work out. Or, you know, I want to go get an associate's degree in nursing. <laughs> Seriously, wow. So the Isha was taken and created from the Ish. So how does this differ from God's creation of other living organisms? We talked about this. How does it differ? He didn't breathe his spirit in them. Didn't breathe their spirit in them. And remember, he took the Isha from the Ish, not the Isha from the ground. Right. We talked about that. How does this affect our view and understanding of the act of copulation? If you don't know what copulation is, you're probably too young to know about copulation right now. So just ask your parents on the way home, what did he mean by copulation? And maybe you'll be fine. But when the, the act of copulation is the rejoining of those two halves, it is a sacred and holy act that is to be viewed through the lens of, of how God's original design and intent was set up. So we don't just flippantly use that ability in any way, in any context, but we do it only within the confines right, of a covenantal relationship with another human being. And, we, and through that covenantal relationship, through that ceremony, we say, aha, I have found my Isha, my other half. Right? And then through the act of that copulation, we create life. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to move on because everybody's grossed out. <laughs> How can 228, or 218, I'm sorry, how can verse two, or chapter two, verse 18, look back at that real fast. How can that be taken out of context? To be used to abuse, objectify, or reduce the value of women, you think? It has throughout history. It has throughout history, absolutely. We say women are just helpers. <laughs> women are here to serve men, right? They forget about the first part that now, says for him not to be alone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, if you find a woman, men, who is willing, a woman who is willing to serve you, um, I hope you're doing things to serve her as well. Amen. Right? And go out of your way to serve her and show her the love of Yeshua, which is like laying down your life for her. Yeah. Now, there is, um, what is the biblical relationship between a husband and a wife? There's two, two main views. Now, neither, granted, neither of these words are in the Bible. Egalitarian and, and complementarian, they're not in the Bible. But the egalitarian view of marriage says this, that a husband and a wife, they're equal. That if there's a dispute over whether you should buy a house, that you have an equal say in that matter. Or, or something like that, okay? That there's, equal, there's equality in the marriage. Complementarian says this, that the man is the head of the household, and the woman complements. In other words, she has skills and abilities and perceptiveness that complement him and his headship. Now, I am 
And I believe the Bible teaches a complementarian. All right? I, I believe, and there's some verses there. You can take a picture. I'm not going through this right now. But listen, I always say this. Men and women in, in, in here, listen. Young people, listen. Marry your best friend. And it will never turn into this discussion. Marry your best friend, and it won't be like, oh, I'm the head of the household. No, you're my best friend. What? I value you. I want your input. Right? And Stacy and I say, you know, when we counsel couples, we say um, we're complementarian. In other words, Gabe Rutledge is the head of the household. That's what the Bible says. But if I make decisions and step out on things without seeking her counsel and advice, that is foolish, right? But a, a good biblical complementarian marriage will look egalitarian when executed well. Does that make sense? Yes. A good, loving, complementarian marriage will look very egalitarian. Strive for that. Now, the army has this really interesting system where... You get, a, you get a young second lieutenant that comes in. He did four years of college, and um, you know, he, didn't, he, didn't, he never had a, had a day of service in his life in the Army. He just went through ROTC or officer candidate school or whatever. And he steps out as a young 22-year-old second lieutenant, and he's put in charge of a, latoon, of, of a platoon of about 30 to 40 guys. And, um, and, and, and he has to lead these guys. Some of these guys have experience, you know, 10, 13, 14 years even that he's suddenly in command of. But the army says, you know what? We're going to give you this little creature. It's called an NCO. <laughs> and the NCO, yeah, it's like you're in charge of the NCO, young lieutenants. You can tell the NCO what to do. You can pull rank on the NCO. But your platoon sergeant, your, your staff sergeant or your sergeant first class, he's got about 15 years on you in experience. He's been through the thicket. He's been downrange. He's heard the bullet zinging, right? And behind closed doors, young lieutenants, when your NCO, when your platoon sergeant says, hey, LT, don't do that. Don't have the guys do that. Hey, LT, that's stupid, man. You listen to him. You take his advice. Now, a good NCO, a good, a good platoon sergeant would do that behind closed doors. He wouldn't undermine the LT's authority in front of the platoon. And then guess what? The LT steps up. Well, I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm 22 years old. I go to college. You know, I took some classes and stuff. I'm going to do it anyways. We're going to get out there. And we're going to do this. Whose fault is it if it goes awry? If the mission goes bad, it's the LT's fault. It's not the NCOs. Right? And marriage can be, and it's not the best analogy, but marriage can kind of be likened to that. My family and my household, our successes and our failures sit on my shoulders. Now, I have a valuable asset in my home, and that is my wife. And she is much smarter and wiser than I am in many ways and better looking. <laughs> if I don't seek her counsel as my, as my ezer, my helper, I am a fool. I am a fool. So I hope that elucidates for you my view on marriage that I can extrapolate from Genesis 2 and other passages in the Bible. And you can use that to benefit your marriage. But again, husbands, 
Like in one of these verses, it says, love your wives as Yeshua loves the church. Lay down your life for your wives. All right, with that, I think that's all of our questions. We're going to close in prayer and, uh, and then close out with the ironic benediction. Thank you guys for your attention. We covered a lot of ground today. Next week, Jeremy will be teaching on Genesis 3. Do your homework and read it. And uh, let's close in prayer and do the, uh, do we have kiddish stuff? Abba, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you are creator and master, and you are so merciful to us that you gave us another day to, to worship you, to serve you, and to experience your Shabbat. May your kingdom come soon and in our days. We thank you for Yeshua, who bled and died on our behalf, even while we were still dead in our sin. May we live lives that are worthy of that dying for. And in his name I pray, amen.